the book of the Revelation is an odd, odd book. Now, part of its oddness, and we've talked a little bit about it, but part of its oddness is just the simple fact that we don't understand the world that it was spoken into. Um, we like to pretend, um, you know, Mike is like me, he loves, he loves history and stuff. We like to pretend we understand the culture of the New Testament, but we really only have shy little bits and pieces, and we're always figuring new stuff out and going, oh, that'd be really great, that'll work with my story. And we have to make sure that we don't just nitpick, pick, pick, history to make because it works with our book um, or our, our preaching lesson or whatever you know um, but we don't really understand a whole lot of this world most of what we know from history about the first century um, in the roman empire most of what we know we know about the the ruling elite the aristocrats now you know if you were to study the 21st century based on uh, the existing records of mark zuckerberg and and uh, Bill Gates and 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 uh, you know the Clintons and the, the, that one percent um, that that one percent of people the Rockefellers and stuff you would come up with a very different image of what our world looks like and it's kind of the same thing with the ancient world now we do have some understand I want to pretend that we don't understand the everyday lives of people but when people talk about a historical record this is a historical record of this so we know that this is the way that people were well the reality is we have one letter or one inscription or one archaeological find and maybe some conf confirming information but we're still kind of just hypothesizing and our vision of the world changes here's a here's a great example right? if you were to close your eyes and imagine what the world of ancient rome or ancient greece looked like would you not envision a bunch of old balding guys walking around in togas probably with many pillars and you know, what's that line from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? It was like the cover of Houses of the Holy. All right. Um, you know, it, it, they, that's how we envision the world. It, it never occurs to us, right? All those marble statues and everything that everybody looks at, those things were painted. It was not like a bland white world that they lived in. They painted stuff. And they painted all kinds of things in beautiful colors and, and did crazy things. And so, um, you know, the... It's, it w it's not the one-dimensional storybook world that we lived in. And, and the lives of the common man was even uh, was very obscure. We, we really don't know. And the book of the Revelation is pretty much um, written to those people that we don't really know a whole lot about. They are, they are a, a group of Christians living in Asia Minor, uh, seven major cities in the western part of what is today Turkey. They were Greek cities. Um, and they were going through difficult transitions. They were, for the most part, the, the second and third generation of Christians, which meant there was nobody left that could tell them. Well, there was one guy. He wrote this book. Um, but there was nobody left that could tell them what Jesus actually said. They had to rely on other people telling them. They had to rely on written records. They, and they were going through a, a period of disaster after disaster after disaster and whenever something happens disastrous, it's always a good idea in American or uh, human culture to blame whatever the newest group of people is. And the newest group of people in that world were these Christians. And so they became the receivers, the scapegoats of the blame. And they were persecuted and they were driven underground, quite literally in some situations. They were worshiping in the, the underground uh, tombs in some of the cities so that they were not caught. They were accused of all kinds of things. They were in 
accused of incest and cannibalism um, and, and, and witchcraft. And, and my, my personal favorite, they were accused of atheism because they did, not, they did not believe in the Greek and Roman gods. They believed in this one god. And they're like, why don't you want choices? You know, this was, this was how the Roman world was. You know, we get to pick and choose which god we want to worship. So this book enters into this context, um, and it is a series of visions, and they are odd. There, there's no denying that they're, they're peculiar. Um, they, they borrow from the imagery of the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Christian Old Testament, uh, specifically the prophets. They borrow a lot from there. Um, they borrow a lot from the Greek and Roman world. There are moments when God is enshrined um, the, if you read chapter 4 of the book of the Revelation, you will see if you imagine the Lincoln Memorial, but put God on the seat where Lincoln is, that's Revelation chapter 4, uh, the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus. Um, and what would happen is that the, the conquering general of the Roman world, he would be red or let, uh, led around wearing purple, his face would be painted orange, and, and he would be surrounded by all these... Uh, waving penance and things and then he would go to the temple of jupiter optimus maximus and he would sit in a chair um right in front of this giant statue of this god jupiter optimus maximus that that's that's jupiter absolutely the best it's just a big latin name for he's really cool um and he would sit there and he would be enthroned and that's what's going on there so there's this mixture of things so over the course of the last couple of weeks we've been talking about some of our rules in interpreting this um, one of the primary rules is the rule of twos. Um, when you see things that occur in twos, they usually help us understand each other. Now, sometimes they contrast. Sometimes they're the same. There's an awful lot of repetition in this book. There's a lot of things where, where uh, uh, and this is the second rule that we've talked about, which is the whirlwind rule, that, that John is seeing these visions and they're just swirling all over him. And so he sees this and he describes that and then he sees this and he describes that and he sees this. And, and, you know, generations of theologians say, well, this is how this fits together, and this is how we can break it down and work it together, and notice this calculation, and add this, and if you account for this extra month, and you know, and Jesus is coming back on July 31st, 1861, that's not right. All right, recalculate that one. All right, they, they, we, we have this tendency to over-understand the revelation. Um, so... This kind of sets up what we're dealing with. In chapter 12 of the book of the Revelation, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. The page number in that Bible is listed in the bulletin. Um, it's page number 889. You know, you know what? This is really a churchy joke. But if I were building pew Bibles, right, I would figure out a way to get the book of the Revelation so it falls on page number 666. I just... I think that would be cool, you know, but it doesn't work out that way. Anyway, the, the book of the Revelation, chapter 12, and we're going to look at, we're going to look at two images. We're going to look at one in chapter 12, it's the primary focus, but then we're also going to look at one in chapter 17, um, and I, I want to get into it, but I want to look at this, this description in Revelation chapter 12 of a, a woman, not just a woman, but the woman. We're going to talk about why it's so significant. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. 
And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, she, he might devour it. That's an image from Greek mythology. Um, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, keep your fingers there. Keep a finger there and turn over like one page to chapter 17. We'll see a second woman. You see, you can't skip four chapters. I'll, I'll get back to those. Don't worry. I'll get them. I'll get them next week. Um, but chapter 17, we see, remember, the rule of twos. Always look for a second one. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now, that's not the greatest translation for this word. The, the Greek word is porni. That's the word we get pornography from. Uh, sexual sinner, all right? Uh, somebody who is uh, a living a lifestyle of sexual sin. That's kind of the description of it. The great prostitute, um, my personal favorite, the old King James Bible translated as harlot. Nobody has any idea what a harlot is, but it sounds negative, all right? Um, a great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Uh, this again, porny. Uh, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you remember chapter 12, we, we saw a dragon that had seven heads and right, ten horns. So we're, we're hopefully you guys are tracking with me. Um, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. This is one of those moments where the Apostle John goes R-rated. So if you're an adult and you really want to know what that is describing, come and see me after church. I'm not going to explain it, um, but it's pretty gratuitous. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great mother of porny, uh, prostitutes, and the earth's abominations. And I saw this woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. I want to look at these two women this morning. We're going to have a word of prayer real quick, and we're going to dive into it. And hopefully I can make sense um, in the time that I have um, of, of these images and be an encouragement to you. Heavenly Father, as we come once again to this written word, to see the living word, Jesus, um, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts and our eyes and our minds. Uh, so much of our uh, reimagining and rethinking of our faith as Christians begins with the transformation of our attitude towards your word as an encouragement to us rather than uh, a condemnation. Help us to be lifted up by your word this morning. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle John was a young man when Jesus called him. He was probably 13 or 14. This is the author of this book, the guy who sees these visions. He's very young, um, probably not married, may have never gotten married. We don't know for sure. Um, but um, when Jesus was crucified, when, when John, he writes a gospel, John writes five books of the Bible. He writes a gospel, he writes the Revelation, he writes three letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He didn't actually call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but you know what I mean. Um, 
when he tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion, he tells the story that, that Jesus looks down from the cross and he says to John, he says, um, woman, and he says to his mother, Mary, al- although John never calls her Mary in his gospel, he always calls her the mother. Um, he, says to her, he says to her, he says, woman, behold your son, pointing to John, as Jesus is dying. And he says to John, he says, he says John, uh, man, see your mother. And he, what he does is he, he, he enacts a, an adoption he says to John, you're going to take care of my mom um, because my, my time as her son is over. Um, he's going to die. He's going to be raised again. He's no longer Mary's son as much as he is glorified as the son of God. Um, and, uh, and so he, he says that to her, and then John goes home and takes care of her. And then John, over the course of his life, he actually winds up being the, the overseeing bishop or elder. They, they didn't have those titles like formally. But he was overseeing the apostle. He's overseeing the churches of this area of Western Turkey, Asia Minor. And that area is a, uh, an area of huge worship of a mother goddess. Um, uh, the Artemis or, or Diana of the Ephesians. There are lots of different names for her. She's, she's funky looking. You can look up archaeological. You can Google it and see um, what her temples look like. And her temple was one of the wonders of the world, wonders of the ancient world. And... and um, John's experience with women colors, I think, the way that he sees the world. Now, one of the fascinating things about John is he absolutely adores the women that he talks about in the scriptures. He gives them, he, he just, he, he, it's very obvious that he, he loves Mary, Jesus' mother. And he, he pours out just, he, every, every word she, he gives her, she's showing this great spiritual maturity. And he honors her. Um, and and he, he's the one that tells us the story of the Samaritan woman, um, this, this outcast woman. Not only was she a part of an ethnic group that everybody wanted to, to reject from the borders, uh, not that it speaks to our modern situation, but it does. Um, but not only is she part of this ethnic group nobody wants to be a part of, but she's actually a woman that's been married five times, that she is completely defiled, and she is to be hated and reviled. And, and Jesus shows compassion and love to this woman. John is also the one who records the story of the woman who was going to be stoned for adultery. Now, some textual scholars say that doesn't belong in the Gospel of John, and they have all these great arguments, but they're wrong. Um, it, it John is the one that tells the story about this woman caught in adultery, and the, the religious leaders bring her to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, this woman should be stoned. And at this moment, Jesus just sits down on the ground, and he starts doodling in the sand, and, and um, he says, you know, basically, he who is righteous, he is, he is without sin, throw the first stone. They all realize they're all sinners. And, and to be honest, I think they actually set her up. I think they were deceiving uh, Jesus, and, and she may not have even actually been caught. I don't, I don't know for sure. But when Jesus stands up, everybody's gone. He goes, where's all your con- accusers? He says, go and, and sin no more. Um, John loves these women, Mary and Martha, the, su- the sisters of Lazarus. He, he loves to tell us stories about strong women of faith. Um, he, he does not, when people tell you that the Bible is down on women, those people don't understand what they're reading. These gospel writers, they are lifting up these strong women. And John does this. Luke does it too. They both, Luke had a strong uh, Christian mother, and, and so he sees strength. So when God reveals this big sign, this amazing thing in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 17, he chooses to show John this image in the shape of two women. Now remember, he's the one that cares for Mary. He's, he is Jesus' mother's 
adopted son, right? So he hears all the stories about Jesus. Oh, he was a good boy. I loved him. He always cleaned his room. He was, you know, um, you know the, the whole thing. Um, but he's, he's, her, he's her caretaker. He's the one who cares for her. And, 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 and probably, this will blow your mind, he's probably the one that buried her. He was the one that would have paid for her, her funeral and her memorial and everything, probably in Ephesus. Um, so God chooses to show him this vision and shows him a woman. Now, the Roman Catholic doctrine is that this woman in Revelation chapter 12 is Mary. Um, I, don't, I don't believe that that's the case, um, but I do think that Protestants really give Mary a short shrift. Mary was an incredible lady. She was a tremendous, tremendously faithful person. Um, so faithful that God chose to make her um, the Christotokos, the bearer of Christ. All right? She was, uh, the Orthodox Church actually calls her Theotokos, the God-bearer. Not that she was divine, but that she was good enough to carry God himself in her womb. So I think she's the personification a living personification of what this woman is. Who is this woman in Revelation chapter 12? Well, let's just look at it for a second. She's clothed with the sun, the moon are under her feet, and she's crowned with the stars. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but this is an image of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob revealed these three things to Joseph, who was one of the great patriarchs of the Jewish faith, um, that Jacob was the sun, and Jacob's mother, Rachel, was the moon, and the children, his, their children were the stars. It's, this, it's a connection back to that Old Testament faith, that old, old faith. But it's also a connection to the creation. Um, creation is defined by the sun and the moon and the stars. The sun, the moon, and the stars were given. All you Bible scholars know the book, in, book of Genesis. The sun, the moon, and the stars were given to us to determine seasons. So we would know that God had created this world. That, that there was a purpose, that there was a role, that there was life, um, that for every winter, spring will come. For every dark night, dawn will come. That they're, they're messengers of hope in the Old Testament. That's what they are. That's what days are. That's what mornings are. Isn't that extraordinary? I, I wish I could preach a whole sermon on that. Um, so she's connected to the Old Testament She's connected to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet she's something more. She's, she's pregnant with this, this one who rules with a rod of iron. Anybody want to guess who that is? All right, that's Jesus. All right, so who is this? All right, this is, a, this is a sign. This is not an actual physical person. This is a vision that he sees. And it is a vision, not of Israel as in the people who, who rebelled and fought and, and worshipped false gods and always were giving, Jesus, uh, giving God a hard time and eventually crucified Jesus. Not them, but the spiritual Israel. The kingdom of the covenant. These are those, this is the people of God and the people of God so faithful through history, Jesus comes from them, the one who will rule and reign. He's born to them. This is the new Jerusalem. This is, this is the spiritual reality of Christ's economy. Heaven on earth, that's who this woman is. And creation, you'll notice the dragon, the beast, hates it. He, he, the sign that appears, this great dragon, hates this woman. 
He's waiting for her to give birth to the child so he can consume this child. He, he figures he can short-circuit the plan. Now, I didn't get into it, but the next chapter, the, the angels of the dragon, the, the dragon's army, wage war against Michael, uh, the archangel, the, the, the head angel of, uh, of, uh, of God's army, all right? And, and they wage war, and Michael and his angels cast the dragon and his, his, uh, his minions out, and they land in the earth and the sea, and then the following chapters are a bunch of chaos. We'll get to that. Now contrast all that I've just said with this second woman. The first woman, she's clothed in creation. She's the kingdom of the covenant. She's pregnant with the one who will rule with the rod of iron. She's, she is strong and beautiful and amazing. Everything about her. And now, personally, I, th- I think that when John sees this, I think he sees her with Mary's face. But I don't think that's actually, he, do- he, he intentionally doesn't name her. He doesn't want to give her a name. Um, but I think he sees, in his mind's eye, he sees that beautiful. And don't you do that? I mean, when you see, when you some something extraordinary, you know somebody that embodies that extraordinariness, you know, you see them in that, right? And so he does that. Then chapter 17, we've got this woman who is the exact opposite. And we get the name, all right? So if this, this beautiful, strong woman in chapter 12 is the New Jerusalem, the woman in chapter 17, she's got her name. And her name is Babylon, the mother of of sexual sin and destruction and abomination. Now, just so you know, the Jewish people, the Christians of this era, Babylon was Rome. Look at how she's dressed. Whereas the woman in chapter 12 is clothed in the the sun and she walks on the moon, this woman is dressed in what color? Purple. All you history students, what does purple mean in the Roman Empire? Oh, not royalty. Oh, you guys, you know better than this. Imperium, all right? They, they did not believe in kings. They hated kings, all right, in Rome. They didn't, they didn't want to have a king. So it's not royalty. It's imperial power. It is the power of the republic, which happens to be invested in people who pass it from son to son. All right, but, but they would not call them kings. The emperor, all right, the ruler. Now, that color, by the way, was granted to you when you were a conquering general, when you had served your military time and demonstrated the power of the people of Rome, then you received the purple hem. All right? so, so, and you were, they decided, senators, their rank was determined by how much purple they got to wear. And only one, not actually the emperor, although it became the sign of the emperor, but the senior consul all right, of Rome was allowed to wear all purple. Now, eventually, of course, the emperor and the senior consul became the same person. Uh, Augustus has this great moment where he's elected consul like 35 years in a row. He's like, and every election he goes, oh, what a surprise. You know, he's like, while his armies are camped around the Senate going, you will elect Augustus. Um, So she's clothed in the trappings. If, if, If the New Jerusalem is the kingdom of the covenant, this is the kingdom of conquest. This is the kingdom of consumption this is this is the kingdom that does whatever it feels like doing lives however it chooses to live look at the woman in chapter 12 she is pregnant now those of you that have been married you know your wife has and your wife doesn't believe this but guys you are all going to shake your heads and say yes your wife is never more beautiful than when she's pregnant all right she now i'm not saying what women should always be pregnant don't 
Every time I make a statement like that, that gets taken out of context. But my wife, I mean, my wife is, is absolutely beautiful. But when she had Ariel, and Ariel was in her belly, flopping around like it was her own personal swimming pool, and, and, and my wife, she just, oh, I feel miserable, I see, feel horrible, and all this. I didn't see any of that. All I saw was, this is a beautiful woman I'm married to. We have a child. That child is coming. We didn't know that Ariel would be so resistant to the idea of coming and put her in the ICU and all that stuff. But, but we, we were, this was beautiful. She's beautiful. She is strong. She's, she's everything that a woman should be in all of her glory and wonder. Here's this other woman. She's walking around with a cup full of her adultery and fornication and abomination. It's a golden cup. It is a festival cup that she will drink from. She is the most vile, repugnant person in the entire scriptures, this woman. Everything about her is awful. She will not even lower herself to biological birth of a child. She just makes children of her abominations and adultery. She, makes, she turns others to her face. And you know what? Whereas the dragon could not wait to consume the child of the woman in chapter 12, the dragon says to this woman, jump on, ride on. Let's go conquer the world together. There are two visions of strength and power here. Now there's all kinds of prophetic stuff that's going on. One of the rules we talk about is that what is happening has happened before, will happen again until Jesus comes. And so they're seeing both their present world and they're seeing the future and they're seeing the past. John is seeing all those things at once. But he sees two kinds of power and God for some reason chooses to reveal that in the shape of two women. The New Jerusalem, this woman of beauty and strength, pregnant with Christ, and she, she plays in the character. The creation itself bends to protect her. And then there's this other woman riding on a dragon full of abomination and disgustingness and sin. And I think these two images, and I've talked about this before, are the heartbreak of God. Because here is the beauty of righteousness the glory of Christ, the, the amazing power of the covenant in chapter 12. And yet, what will mankind choose? What did the Roman Empire choose? He chose the harlot Babylon. He chose to live in the abomination. It does not surprise me. This is the only political moment you'll hear this whole election season. It does not surprise me at all that we have chosen two amoral people as the candidates of the political parties in the United States. I have a master's degree in history. I've seen this happen. People say, well, if we just got a good moral government in, everything would be better. People will not choose a good moral government. They will choose the government that will allow them to do whatever they want and will entitle them to whatever they feel they need. That is humanity. That's why, i got to get on my soapbox for a second. That's why the United States was established as a republic, a rule of law, instead of a democracy, which is a rule of the mob. 
They are different. Okay. That, by the way, is why the church is not a democracy. Whether you like it or not, and I don't mean to shock anyone about this if you haven't heard this, the church is a benevolent dictatorship ruled by Christ. He is the head of the church. The pastor, the elders, the leaders, we have no authority except the authority of the word of God. And when we get into meddling with all of the things that we shouldn't be meddling with, that's when the church becomes the, 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 the corrupt, disgusting thing that so many things that carry around that label church are. There are two powers personified by these two women. And John asks his, his, his readers, Jesus asks through John, he says, which will you choose? Which woman are you going to be? The children of. Now, I believe, and, and uh, Mike over here, he calls this, there's this thing called bullet theology. Things that I would take a bullet for and things I would not. Um, I would not take a bullet for this, but I'm going to tell you something. I believe that, G, that John sees this vision. It's the first thing that he writes down. And then he writes his gospel based on the, the things he has seen here. And he writes his letters based on understanding who the elect woman is the bride of christ the church and he calls the church if you read john's letters particularly second john and third john he tells the church you are the children of the elect lady don't let anyone distract you from that don't invite false teachers into your church you make sure that you stay true to the lady i think that's chapter 12 i think that's this woman this covenant this kingdom of righteousness Do you know, and I, I'm in the book of the Revelation, if we were to take what is prophesied, the book of the Revelation has prophecy in it, but it is not a book of prophecy. If that makes any sense. If what happens in the book of the Revelation actually is supposed to be the end of days, and there are a lot of people that believe that, the thing about the book of the Revelation is take five seminary professors, put them in a room, have them talk about the book of the Revelation. Two of them will come out without broken limbs. One of them will be going to prison. Um, they, they will inevitably fight over this. If it is the end of days, then one of the extraordinary things that happens at the end of the days is when the dragon, when uh, the, the evil one, when Satan, the, the accuser, right, is released, mankind rushes to him. They can't wait to serve him because this whole, what fun is it to be good righteous what fun is it to be moral what fun is it to to not get to choose i tell people all the time i do things because the bible says them to do them not because i think they're good ideas now where the bible doesn't talk about it i i have freedom when the bible tells me to be faithful to my wife from death to from to cleave unto my wife to make her the priority priority relationship. Guess what I do? That's what the Bible says. I do that thing. If the Bible says I shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal, now common sense. Don't lie, cheat, or steal, because eventually you'll lie, cheat, or steal against somebody bigger and stronger than you, and they'll beat you up. Um, but the Bible says not to do that. The reason I do it, the reason I don't murder people, and trust me, when I drive in Massachusetts, there are people <laughs> that I really want to murder, all right? Um, and I murder them in my mind. 
Um, you know, but I want to murder somebody, but I don't do it. You know why I don't do it? It's not because I have this innate inability to murder somebody. I'm Italian. It's in our blood. <laughs> Romans, Normans, Lombards, we, the Italians excel at murdering people. Um, we invented methods of execution. And we used to go around, this is a great story, this is a side story, but the Romans, the Romans went to fought the Punic Wars with the Carthaginians, and they saw all these, these sticks in the ground, and they said, what's that for? And the, Puni- the Carthaginians who were defeated, you know, oh, that's how we execute people. And the Romans went, what? This is incredible, and started crucifying people all over the Mediterranean. They got it from somebody else, and they said, it's fantastic. They cut down all of the trees around Jerusalem during the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 so they could crucify the Jews. All of them. They cut, they're literally looking around for Jews to put on crosses until the generals are actually campaigning. We've got to stop sentencing people to capital punishment. We've run out of trees. That was the Romans. That's the woman in chapter 17. That's her children. And let me tell you something. We as Christians, we choose. We choose which woman we'll be the children of. We choose whether we're going to live in the household of righteousness and the household of the one who is born to reign. And we will choose to live in the house of abomination. I really genuinely believe that the world is divided. It is a battlefield between the victorious God and the defeated but unwilling to submit to the evil one. He's lost the war. He knows he can't win, but he's going to take as many with him as he can. That's why when he's depicted as a dragon, he sweeps one-third of the stars with him. I'll take what I can. I will consume and conquer. And whether it is ancient Rome or it is the British Empire in India and Australia or it is uh, the, um, the oppression of the... Na- oh, I'm going to get all my diatribe. I'll get it off of that. Or it's just simply me living for abomination and sin. It's a harlot Babylon. You see, it can't possibly be this simple. This is how God revealed it to John. He showed us two strong women and he says, choose. He says, choose. By the way, The harlot Babylon's got all the luxuries. The woman from chapter 12 gets nothing but war against her. The dragon tries to destroy her. His armies try to destroy her. The angels uh, that are on on the dragon side. Read chapters 13 through through 16. Everything they can do, they do to try to... the, the, The dragon actually summons wild beasts from the land and from the sea to make war against her goes through all that then you read in chapter 18 and 19 we'll get all these and there's this great war in heaven battle of armageddon and all this stuff and when the time comes the new jerusalem right it's called the bride of christ when her husband comes battle's over when he finally decides it's over it's over he's in charge yeah babylon looks pretty attractive but I'm sticking with her guy. I don't want to have anything to do with that. 
one last little thing, and I'm going to sing, and we'll, we'll be done. The harlot Babylon is very, very smart. The dragon is extremely smart. They never offer a cup of abomination and say, here, drink. One little thing. Oh, it's not important that Jesus is in charge of that. Oh, it's not important that you live that way. It's okay to look occasionally. It's not a problem. It's easy. And then before we, we know, we start sliding in shame. You say, why should Christians live holy lives? Why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? Perfect lives? Are we capable of that? No. If you are capable, if you believe that you are capable of living a perfect Christian life, you have already lied to yourself. But we choose. You say, sounds awful simple. Kind of graphic, but simple. It is simple. We choose the house of the covenant. We choose the house of consumption and conquest. We choose to be New Jerusalem erupting from the ashes of Babylon. Or we choose to hold on to the falling, dying reign of Babylon. That's our choice. Would you join me in prayer? I don't usually do this when I ask somebody to do something while I'm praying. Say, can you switch the pastor? Father, as we are looking at kind of a macroscopic view of the world and history and all this stuff, Lord, I, I pray that I've made some sense. That you would be glorified in us. And that we would rise to do what you've called us to do to be who you've called us to be in the midst of falling Babylon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, get it close enough. Just clip it on. I'll take it. It's my roadie. Can't do anything with them, right, Mike? <laughs> Here, I'll just put this in my pocket. Things never happen smoothly, like a rule. I come, God, I come. Return to the Lord, one who's broken, one who's torn me apart. Struck me down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you in 
your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. My heart and flesh may fail. The earth below give way. With my eyes, with my eyes, I'll see the Lord. Lifted high upon that day, behold the Lamb that was slain. And I'll know every tear was worth it all. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. And though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. And though tonight I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me. You're still more than I need. You're enough for me. You're enough for me. Join me on this chorus. Though you slay me, Yet I will praise you, though you take from me. I will bless your name, though you ruin me. Still I will worship, sing a song to the one who's all I need. I'll sing a song to the one who's all I need.